Chapter 6 Division of Surplus Value Among the Capitalists Equalization of the Rate of Profit We already know that surplus value is created only by the labour of workers, but the various enterprises do not employ the same number of workers. Moreover, the greatest number of men is not always employed by the enterprise which has the greatest capital investments. Let us take two capitalists, each having the same amount of capital, a million dollars. One has built an electric power station equipped with all the latest improvements. The other has opened up a stone quarry where much manual labour is required. Only 50 workers are employed at the electric power station, whereas 500 are employed at the quarry. The question arises, will the owner of the quarry get 10 times more profit than the owner of the electric power station? We know that for capitalism, the aim of production is to make profit. If operating quarries, with the same outlay of capital, were more profitable than operating electric power stations, many fortune hunters would be found who would go into the quarry business. On the other hand, few would care to invest their capital in electric power stations. But we already know, now, what this would lead to. The price of quarried stone would drop, and the price of electric power would rise. The question may, however, be asked, what are the limits within which these prices may range? Let us assume that prices have changed to the extent that both enterprises yield the same profits. Will prices still change? Obviously not. Therefore, no owner of an electric power station will find it more profitable to go into the quarry business. Both enterprises have the same advantages. Capitalist industry consists not of one or two enterprises, however, but of a tremendous number of plants, factories, etc. The amount of capital invested in each one of them is, of course, different. But all these investments differ among themselves in their organic composition, i.e. in the relation between constant and variable capital. The greater the constant capital in comparison with the variable capital, the higher the organic composition of capital. On the contrary, one speaks of a low organic composition of capital when the variable capital is greater in comparison with the constant capital. We can therefore say that the electric power station is characterised by a high organic composition of capital. In other enterprises, we shall find on the contrary a low organic composition of capital. In which cases would this be? It is not difficult to answer this question. We find a low organic composition of capital whenever many workers are employed, while the cost of buildings, machinery, etc. is not very great. Let us take, for example, a contractor making embankments, etc. for a railroad construction job. His expenditure of constant capital is not very great. He buys some wheelbarrows, picks and shovels, and that is all. But he will employ many labourers. The greater part of his capital will go for the hiring of labour power. Since surplus value is created only by the labour of the workers, enterprises with a low organic composition of capital appear to be the most profitable. But the struggle for profits among the capitalists lead to the equalisation of profits with the same amount of capital invested. 
The ratio of the profits of the capitalists to the amount of capital invested is called the rate of profit. For instance, if by investing a million in an enterprise, the capitalist gets profits to the amount of 100,000, his rate of profit is one-tenth, or 10%. Competition among the capitalists leads to the law of the general or average rate of profit. This law, like all the laws of the capitalist system, enforces itself amid ceaseless fluctuations in the struggle of all against all. We have shown in an example how the rate of profit is equalised in capitalist society. For the sake of simplicity, we shall assume that there are only three capitals, or three groups of capital in society, all of the same amount, but differing in organic composition. Let us assume that the capital in each to be 100 units. The first consists of 70 units of constant capital and 30 units of variable capital, the second of 80 constant and 20 variable, and the third of 90 constant and 10 variable. Let the rate of surplus value in all three enterprises or groups of enterprises be the same and equal 100%. This means that every worker works half a day to earn his wages and the other half the day for the capitalist. In this case, the surplus value obtained by each enterprise will equal the amount of variable capital, i.e. in the first 30 units of surplus value in the second, 20, in the third, 10. If commodities produced in capitalist enterprises would sell at their value, then the first enterprise would get 30 units of profit, the second, 20, the third, 10. But the amount of capital invested in each of these three is the same. Such a situation would be very welcome to the first capitalist, but not at all so to the third. In such a case, it is more advantageous for the capitalist of the third group to transfer to the first group. This leads to competition among the capitalists in the first group, which compels them to lower prices and at the same time gives the capitalists in the third group the possibility of raising prices, so that the profit in all three groups is the same. Besides the difference in the organic composition of capital, the amount of surplus value squeezed out of the workers also depends on the speed of turnover of capital. If two capitalists have the same amount of capital, and if the organic composition of their capital is the same, the one whose capital turns over more quickly will be able to squeeze out more surplus value. Let one have a turnover once a year, and the other three times a year. It is evident that the second one will be able to hire three times as many workers, and squeeze out three times as much surplus value. On the whole, this difference is also equalised by the same law of the average rate of profit, which takes effect through competition among the capitalists. But this means that commodities in capitalist society are sold not at their value, but at prices which vary in some way from their value. And actually, under capitalism, commodities are sold at prices fluctuating about their cost of production. The cost of production of a commodity consists in the amount spent on production plus average profit on the capital invested. Quote, profit is the ratio between the surplus value and all the capital invested in an undertaking. Capital with a high organic composition, 
i.e. with a preponderance of constant capital over variable capital, to an extent above the social average, yields a less than the average rate of profit. Capital with a lower organic composition yields a more than the average rate of profit. Competition among the capitalists who are free to transfer their capital from one branch of production to another reduces the rate of profit in both cases to the average. The sum total of the values of all the commodities in a given society coincides with the sum total of prices of all the commodities, but in separate undertakings and in separate branches of production. As a result of competition, commodities are sold not in accordance with their values, but in accordance with the prices of production, or production prices, which are equal to the expended capital plus the average profit. End quote. Lenin, Marx Engels Marxism, Karl Marx, page 21 to 22. Under capitalism, commodities are sold not at their value, but at the price of production. Does this mean, however, that the law of value has no force in capitalist production? Not at all. We must remember that the price of production is only a different form of value. Some capitalists sell their commodities above their value, others below. But all the capitalists taken together receive the full value of all the commodities and the total profits of the entire capitalist class are equal to the surplus value produced by all the unpaid social labour. Within the framework of the whole of society, the sum total of production prices is equal to the sum total of the values of the commodities and the sum total of profits is equal to the sum total of unpaid labour of the workers. A reduction in the value of commodities leads to a reduction in their price of production, whereas an increase in their value leads to an increase in their price of production. It is in this way that the law of value has its effect through the price of production. Quote, in this way, the well-known and indisputable fact of the divergence between prices and values and of the equalisation of profits is fully explained by Marx in conformity with the law of value, for the sum total of values of all the commodities coincides with the sum total of all the prices. End quote. Ibid. Tendency towards lower rates of profit. The capitalist conducts his enterprise for the sake of the profit he derives from it. Profit is the motive power of capitalist industry. The development of capitalism, however, inevitably tends to reduce the average rate of profit. Profit is a mass of surplus value taken with respect to the entire capital invested in the enterprise. The rate of profit is the ratio of the gains of the capitalist to his capital. But we know that the amount of surplus value is determined by the amount of variable capital, that is, by that part of capital which goes for the hiring of labour power. The organic composition of capital, however, is continually changing with the development of capitalism, continually becoming higher. With the growth of technical improvements, the amount of raw material, machinery and equipment of enterprises 
becomes constantly greater. And that part of the capital which goes to pay for dead labour grows at a considerably more rapid rate than the variable capital which goes to pay for live labour. But under capitalism, the consequence of a higher organic composition of capital is the inevitable tendency towards a lower rate of profit. Each individual capitalist, replacing workers by machinery, cheapens production, broadens the market for his commodities and strives to obtain a greater profit for himself. This is self-evident. Otherwise, he would not install machinery. But the development of technical improvements, expressing itself in a higher organic composition of capital, calls forth consequences which are beyond the power of the individual capitalist to remedy. This consequence is the tendency towards a lower general, or average, rate of profit. Quote, An increase in the productivity of labour means a more rapid growth of constant capital, as compared with variable capital. Inasmuch as surplus value is a function of variable capital alone, it is obvious that the rate of profit, the ratio of surplus value to the whole capital, and not to its variable parts alone, has a tendency to fall. Marx makes a detailed analysis of this tendency, and of the circumstances that incline to favour it, or to counteract it. End quote. Taken from Lenin's Marx, Engels, Marxism, page 22. Among the counteracting circumstances comes first of all the increase in the rate of exploitation of the workers. It must further be kept in mind that with the increase of the productivity of labour, the value of machinery and equipment, etc., falls. If one worker used to operate two looms and now operates 16, it is necessary to remember that now the value of the looms is lower. 16 looms do not cost eight times as much now as two did formerly, but only five or perhaps four times as much. Hence the fraction of constant capital that falls to one worker is not eight times greater than it was, but only five or four times greater. There are also other causes for the retardation of the fall in the rates of profit. It must also be understood that the reduction in the rate of profit does not signify a decrease in the mass of profit, that is, in the full amount of surplus value squeezed out of the working class. On the contrary, the mass of capitalist profits grows steadily because capital continues to grow. The mass of workers who are being exploited increases. The degree of exploitation becomes greater. However, the tendency towards a lower rate of profit still exists and exerts a powerful influence on the entire development of capitalism. This tendency towards a decrease in the rate of profit greatly sharpens the contradictions of capitalism. The capitalists try to counterbalance the falling off in the rate of profit by increasing the exploitation of the workers, which leads to a number of contradictions between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The fall in the rate of profit sharpens the struggle within the camp of the capitalists. In order to save themselves from this tendency, capitalists establish enterprises in backward countries where hands are cheaper, the rate of exploitation is higher, and the organic composition of capital is lower than in the highly industrialised countries.
In addition, the capitalists combine in all kinds of unions, trusts, cartels, etc., in order to keep prices at higher levels, trying thus to increase their profits, to keep the rates of profit from falling. During periods of crisis, when all the contradictions of capitalism grow most acute, the contradictions caused by the tendency for the rates of profit to fall become clearly apparent. Commercial capital and its income. As we've already said, under capitalist economy, things are produced not for immediate use, but for sale. Hence, the troubles of the entrepreneur are not over when the commodities have been produced. They have yet to be sold. The capitalist has to sell the commodities he has produced in order to turn his capital into money again. Under developed capitalist economy, the producer does not wait for the consumer to come to him for the commodities. As a rule, the manufacturer sells his goods to an intermediary merchant, middleman, and the latter manages the further movement of the commodities to the consumers to whom they will be sold. Everyone knows that for trade, capital is necessary. Without means, the merchant cannot fulfil the function of bringing the commodities to the purchaser, the consumer. If the industrialist had to sell his goods himself, he would have to expend a definite amount of capital on equipping a store, hiring clerks, etc. Hence, the industrialist let the merchant take care of this, giving him a share of the profit. The profit of commercial capital thus consists of part of the surplus value which the industrialist concedes to the merchant. Expending a certain amount of capital, the merchant must receive the usual rate of profit on his capital. If his profit is less than the average, it will be unprofitable to engage in commerce and the merchant will transfer his capital to industry. The merchant not only serves as an intermediary for commodities produced at capitalist plants and factories, he also buys commodities from peasants, artisans and handicraftsmen. In some village, say, the locksmith trade has flourished for ages. The handicraftsmen themselves find it difficult to locate a market for their products. Their immediate region already has a sufficient supply of locks. A buyer comes who purchases a big lot, takes it to another part of the country where he sells it advantageously. In selling the locks, the buyer receives their value, while the price for which he purchased them from the handicraftsman was very low. Part of the difference between the sales prices and the purchase price goes to pay various expenses, packing, transporting, etc. The remainder constitutes his profit, the gain received from the trade. Thus, commercial capital exploits the small independent commodity producers, gradually transforming them into its workmen working at home. In this way, the merchant exacts his profit from simple commodity production. Forms of commerce, speculation. Under modern capitalist economy, trade is not carried on only with articles of consumption. 
On the contrary, a tremendous number of commercial deals are transacted with commodities which are needed for further production or for transport. A textile mill buys cotton, coal, machinery, looms, dyes. A machine building plant buys coal, iron and machinery. Railroads buy vast quantities of rails, railroad cars and locomotives. It's necessary to distinguish between wholesale and retail trade. The manufacturer customarily sells his goods to a wholesaler. The wholesaler resells the goods to smaller tradesmen who in their turn sell them retail to the consumer. The structure of the trade apparatus in capitalist countries is very complex. Big deals are transacted at produce exchanges. Some commodities pass through a number of hands before coming to the ultimate consumer. The participants in these deals and resales often do not even see the commodities. Usually only warehouse receipts are sold, which merely confirm the presence of the commodities and confer the right to receive them. It is clear that not all goods can be dealt with in this way. For this it is necessary that the goods be of strict uniformity, that the quality be easily established and noted in the corresponding warehouse documents. Frequently, merchants buy goods at the produce exchange, not for the purpose of selling them to the consumer, but only because they expect a rise in the market price, so that it will be possible for them to exact a profit on the resale of these goods. Actually, prices fluctuate. Uh, depend upon a number of causes which is which it is difficult or simply impossible to foresee. Let us say that at the beginning of the summer a good harvest is expected and the price of grain, say, falls. If later the harvest suddenly seems to be worse than was expected, there's usually a sharp rise in grain prices. This creates the opportunity for speculation. Speculation is inseparably bound up with the whole nature of capitalist commerce. The gain which falls to the share of the speculator is the loss of hundreds and thousands of people who take part in the production of or in trade with the commodities which are the subject of speculation. Uh, it's worth reading on this subject if you want to expand on it. The World for Sale, uh, a book written about the commodities traders and particularly the commodities traders since World War II and after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The, incredible gains in speculation of those traders was the loss of the masses of the Soviet people. Loan capital and credit. In capitalist society, it is not only the capitalist who owns an industrial or commercial enterprise who receives an unearned income. Under capitalism, a continually increasing number of parasites crop up, who receive tremendous incomes without doing any work whatsoever merely because they are in possession of an enormous capital, possesses a great amount of money. How does the money of these capitalists increase? The owners of money capital usually keep their money in a bank. The bank pays a definite rate of interest on deposits. But where does the bank get the means with which to pay out this interest? Money that lies in the vaults of the bank, in the form of gold or bills, does not increase of itself. Capitalism knows only one source for the increase of capital. This source lies in production, in the plant, in the factory, the mine, the agricultural enterprise, etc. Therefore, a modern bank does not hide away and hold on to the money which is deposited with it. It leaves only enough money in the vaults 
to meet the usual demands of the depositors. Experience has shown that in ordinary times only a small proportion of the depositors call for the return of their money daily. The money which they withdraw is usually covered by new incoming deposits. Of course, things take a different turn in case of any unusual event, as in times of crisis, war, etc. Then, the entire mass of depositors suddenly, all together, demand the return of their money. If the bank cannot make adequate preparations for this attack and gather into its vaults a sufficient amount of money by means of borrowing from other banks, from the government, etc., and if it does not succeed in abating the run on the bank, it fails. This means that it declares itself unable to pay back its depositors. A bank failure means the ruin of many capitalists, the wiping out of the savings of the petty bourgeoisie, etc. A bank failure thus only aggravates the crisis. Under ordinary circumstances, however, the bank can keep comparatively little money in its vaults and yet be able to satisfy the demands of all the depositors who wish to withdraw their money. The bank lends the remaining money to capitalists who are in need of funds. We already know for what purpose the capitalist needs money. He needs it to use as capital, to be used for production. It makes no difference that he does not get the money permanently, but only for a definite period of time. In the production and sale of his commodities, he realises various sums of money at various times. From the money thus received, the capitalist can repay the bank loan. From the money thus received, the capitalist can repay the bank loan. It must also be remembered that, under developed capitalism, banks not only grant loans to capitalists for more or less short terms, but that they also invest vast sums of money in industry for very long terms. The industrial capitalist uses the money received from the bank as capital. With the help of his capital he expands production on a much wider scale than he could have done if he had not obtained the loan. The distinguishing feature of loan capital thus consists in the fact that it is applied in production not by the capitalist to whom it belongs, but by another. By using the loan obtained from the bank in his enterprise, the industrial capitalist who received the loan can hire more workers, hence obtain more surplus value. The industrial capitalist has to pay part of this surplus value to the bank for the capital it put at his disposal. If he borrowed $1,000 and must repay $1,070 at the end of the year, it is said that the bank charges 7% on money loaned. In this case, the bank will pay its depositors a somewhat smaller interest, say 5% on money deposited. This means that of the $70 that the bank received from the industrialist, the bank must pay $50 to the people who deposited the $1,000. The bank's profit will amount to $20 on this deal. Anyone can see that this transaction is very similar to any other ordinary commercial transaction. If a merchant bought a horse for $50 and sold it for $70, he made $20. The bank also paid $50 and received 70 
making $20 profit. The only difference is that the commodity with which the bank dealt with was not a horse, nor an ordinary commodity generally, but a commodity of a very special nature. What is this commodity? What this commodity is, we have already seen, $1,000 converted into capital and used as capital for the period of one year, the bank's trading capital. A bank is a merchant dealing in capital. Rate of interest. Capital is thus converted into a commodity with which transactions are carried on in various ways. In these transactions, the price of capital is established. In our case, $70 was the price paid by the industrialist for the use of $1,000 worth of capital for a period of one year. This price was paid by the entrepreneur to the merchant of capital, the bank. In its turn, the bank paid the owners of this capital $50 for the right to use it for one year. The question now arises, what does this price depend on? What determines the rate of interest paid for capital? This rate is subject to frequent change. Capitalists often say, money is cheap now, or money is dear now. In the first case, this means that money can be borrowed at low rates of interest. In the second case, on the contrary, a high rate of interest must be paid. As in every commercial transaction, the price in this case is ultimately determined by supply and demand. If, in a given month, very many capitalists need additional money and determine to get it at any cost, then the demand on money for loans is great. Let us see, however, to what extent this cost can become greater. In our example, the industrial capitalist paid the bank $70 for the use of capital amounting to $1,000 for one year. Why was such a transaction advantageous to him? because he very probably made 15-16% to 16 profit on the capital invested in his enterprise. This means that on every $1,000 invested, the entrepreneur realised $150-$160 to $160 in profit. After paying the bank $70, he still had $80-$90 to $90 left. This is the difference between the rate of profit obtained in industry and the rate of interest paid to the bank. Should the rate of interest rise because of the demand for loans, this rise evidently has its limits. The bank may demand $80 to $90 instead of $70. It will still be of advantage to the industrialist to take the loan. But if the bank will demand $150 to $160, he will refuse. Under these terms, he would get no profit, but only much trouble. Thus, in rising, the rate of interest is limited by the average rate of profit of the entrepreneur. It is usually considerably less than the average profit. Only in rare cases, during crises, does it reach this level. On the other hand, with an increase in the supply of money over the demand, the rate of interest paid for its use will fall. Depending on circumstances, the rate of interest in this case may fall exceedingly low. Although, of course, no one will lend money gratis. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, 
and Fury. Do like, comment, subscribe and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources and we need worker support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.